Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm genuinely delighted to have as my guest, Moeed Amin. He is the director and founder of a company called Proverbial Door. Moeed, would you mind giving 60 seconds on your background, please? Yeah, 60 seconds. Okay. So I come from a neuroscience background. I, I studied it at university, graduated in it. Like so many people, I left university not really knowing what I wanted to do in the world and how I wanted to make my mark. I was driven by money, which in my old age now or older age, I realized is probably not the best thing. I converted to law, didn't enjoy that, and uh, fell into sales. Uh, I, I saw that of all the job postings out there, sales happened to be one of the most prolific. And I also noticed the uh, on-target earnings, which happened to be quite high. So I thought this was a good, uh, a good start into a profession. I was never intended to stay in it for, for very long, but I ended up absolutely loving the job. I absolutely loved sales and I, I feel it's a very noble profession and something I'm very passionate about. So I worked for a few companies, some in the telecom space, majority of which were in the market research space in the advisory area. So they were subscription-based services, but very high-end. So we would work with C-level executives in uh, very large businesses. So that's really, in, an, in a 60 seconds, my background, my professional background, at least. Excellent. Okay. So, Marie, I know you recently conducted a study with 2,500 buyers. So let me set the scene. Moeed studies why people buy, why they don't, and approaches it from a neuroscience background. And he looks at behavior. And I want to delve into this study because I suspect there's some value. If you're a professional seller, understanding what goes through the minds of buyers and how they are triggered to decide to buy or not uh, is going to be key. But I know you need to lead with an apology to your audience. So let's kick off with that. And Marcus, thank you for, for, for mentioning this. And you're absolutely right. One of my passions, which has been even before going into sales, was how and why do people make the decisions they do? Not just in the professional world, but also in the personal world. And then the two are very interlinked. And there's been a lot of talk about the importance of personalization in our outreach, particularly cold outreaches. There's also been a lot of talk around being able to scale our approach. So whether you have 100 SDRs or whether you are just the only SDR or you're responsible for cold outreaches and you have a large territory, how can I scalably do that while personalizing? And I wanted to understand whether any, and I suppose this is the neuroscience or the researcher part of me that wanted to understand what were the numbers behind that? Like, what's the real reality? Because we all know intuitively that we buyers want, and people want to feel as if they're unique, right, in, the, in, in what they're receiving from you. So I unwittingly recruited over 2,500 buyers through LinkedIn. And I deliberately used an outreach that was lazy. It was all about me. And I even put automated responses based upon whether they, whether they accepted my connection request, just to really drive it home. And I really wanted to see at what stage and at what point do buyers get really annoyed and either don't respond or come back to me with feedback. I'm still collecting all the data. So firstly, my apology, which is I am sorry to all of you that you were unwittingly recruited in, 
in this research. I did so because I wanted to, the responses to be as authentic and genuine as possible. What I found was very interesting. You've learned two and a half thousand relationships. Yeah, and and that's one of the things that I actually kind of feel guilty about and regret in some respects. So, and that's part of the trust relationship, which which I'm sure we're going to come on to later on. It's one of the eight qualities of being trustworthy. What I found was interesting. I mean, firstly, no surprise, personalization is important, right? And and people, they don't want lazy approaches because lazy is almost, it's almost the same as disrespect, actually, in a lot of ways. The first thing was that surprisingly, people generally are a bit more tolerant of a general outreach at the very first level, which is to connect. Now, this is different to email because on LinkedIn, there is, there is their own interest, which is to expand their own network and connect with more people. So they were slightly more tolerant through LinkedIn versus email of a cold and lazy and all about me, the salesperson outreach. But when you get further along the, the chain, right, and along the outreach process, they become less and less tolerant, in fact, dramatically. So what was surprising was that the response rate, at least for connection requests and accepting it, was 20, about around 21%. I'm still collecting all the data. So 21% of people... I even targeted people who are not my clients, my type of clients, like chief revenue officers. I even targeted people that had nothing to do with sales and the message was all about sales. Even so, 21% of the, uh, the people that I sent this to responded with an acceptance request, uh, acceptance of the uh, connection request. So what's interesting there is that at least at the first level and on social media, there is a bit more tolerance towards accepting that. So you can at least create that connection. However, the research doesn't go into any further around, you know, will they accept the further information, even if that is very personal. You may have already set the scene that they're not really willing to speak to you, but for their own interest, they're willing to accept your connection requests. So there are some gaps in that research, which, were, which I will consider exploring further. Um, but that was certainly an interesting, interesting study. And I wanted to get some real facts behind that to help not only SDRs, but help the business owners and, and sales leaders to see some of the numbers behind some of, some of the expectations that they're wrongfully pushing on their sellers. When do you expect to complete that research? In a few weeks' time. I would say probably two, two to four weeks, depending on my okay. workload. So it, it might be worthwhile maybe a revisit once the research is out to take that a little bit further. Yes. So before we go into a load of detail about uh, various topics. One thing I would like to do is take you up on that uh, point that you made earlier on about what are the eight qualities of being trustworthy. Do you mind talking us through what your findings are on that? Yes, and it's the focus of my upcoming book. And let's start with statistics that show why this is still so important. LinkedIn did a, a survey, which they did on the state of sales for 2020. That and the results were maybe not surprising, but they were very disheartening and disappointing to still see. The first piece of statistic was that 40% of buyers feel that sellers are untrustworthy. So just under half of the people that you're probably calling on already have this preconception that you are not worthy of their trust. What was even more damaging 
was that 25% of buyers, and these are the people that they surveyed, but 25% of buyers feel that the whole sales profession is, quote, morally and ethically challenged, end quote. And that's a real problem, real problem. Because without trust, we're not willing to engage with, with the seller. And this is not just in the professional world, this is in the personal world. I had a story of someone who gave me the story about, you know, they were renovating their home and uh, how they decided on which of the three contractors they were going to work with. And when I dug deeper, when we got past the whole, you know, features and the fact that they were more experienced, et cetera, it came down to one real thing, which is the person that they selected, they felt they could really trust that person because of the way they, they conducted themselves. Stephen Covey wrote, once wrote that, uh, you know, in terms of the quality of leadership is to inspire trust. And trust is made up of two things, which is character and competence. And the eight qualities are really on the character side. So the first quality is authenticity. Are you being yourself when you are engaging with that buyer? Are you not just saying things for the sake of the fact that either you're trained to do so or you think the buyer is going to want to hear those things? Are you saying things because they are in line with your values and your beliefs? That's the first quality of the characteristics of trust. The second one is consistency. Let me give an example. Although it's not, it's not a buyer example, it does still, it does still kind of hit the, hit the meaning home, which is one of the, in my second job in sales, I approached my sales director named by the name of Tony Pearson. And I asked him, what trait or quality do you need to see in me to consider me for a management position? And his answer stuck with me even today, which is consistency. And I asked him to explain that a bit further. And he said, well, I have a sales manager who I can rely on and trust because he's consistent in his attitude, his emotional state, his approach every day. Right, So someone that has too high a peak or too low a trough is not someone that I can rely on to deliver on the goals that we have for our business. I want to work, I want to have someone that I can trust who is going to be consistent in their approach. They're going to be able to manage the stresses and strains, even if there are things in their personal life. And do they have the maturity to be able to uh, consistently perform? And a buyer kind of wants to see the same, right? Even though things may go wrong, is the seller consistent in how they come across to us every day or whenever we have an interaction? So so consistency is incredibly important. Uh, The third one's integrity. And that's essentially kind of honesty and trust. uh, Sorry, honesty and truthfulness. And there is research in terms of cognitive psychology, and we all kind of know this intuitively, which is even if we don't do something great compared to our competitors, do we call it out and do we talk about that? Or at least do we identify it and share it with the buyer? When we look at buying a product nowadays, whether it's Amazon or or even in business, we will look at the reviews. And if the reviews are too perfect, you've heard the saying, it's too good to be true. Well, it's because our brain kind of looks at that and says, we don't like imperfection because imperfection doesn't really exist. So we look for inconsistencies. We look for reasons why something may not be 100% perfect. And if the seller doesn't call it out on their own initiative, if the buyer finds that out themselves, 
they instantly may not trust that salesperson, right? So being honest and truthful is incredibly important for the buyer. The fourth one is responsibility, right? And, and this comes under the, the umbrella of accountability as well. Even if something goes wrong, do I feel that sense of accountability and responsibility to the buyer to address that, tell them what we're doing, and also put steps in place to make sure that that doesn't happen again, or it's, there's a minimal risk or chance of that happening again? Makes sense. So to give you an example, my first sales job, I worked for a telecoms business. This was in the early days of IP telephony, you know, cloud computing, et cetera. We had a DOS attack, which wiped out the, um, the system, right? It went, it went down for a full 24 hours. And we worked with large businesses, someone which in construction, et cetera. They were in effect unable, unable to communicate with themselves and their clients for a full day. So we put stages in place where we were honest in saying, this is why this happened. We figured out why this has happened. This is what we're going to do right now to deal with it for the short term to fix this problem. But at the same time, we're feeding back all that information to our technical team so that they can start to put fail-safes in place that this doesn't happen again. And, and the way that we conducted ourselves, we owned that responsibility. We didn't try to blame the internal person, so a disgruntled employee who left and caused that attack and basically took advantage of a weakness within the system. We owned that responsibility and we owned fixing it as well as helping, helping our clients find a workaround in the meantime. So we didn't just say we'll fix it and leave them to it. We actually gave them advice and guidance and support on how to do so. And I didn't sign off at 6 p.m. like other salespeople, for example, not in the company, but other salespeople might have done. I was online for the whole 24 hours because I felt that responsibility to my client because this was their business at the end of the day. Michael Bradywake talks about rigorous authenticity. Yes. And what that means is that you have to be authentic all the time. Even when it terrifies you, even when it may backfire and work against you, even when it's to your disadvantage. And what that does is it builds immediate and enormous credibility. And I, I see that lacking in so many sales organizations where they believe that it's okay to lie to prospects, where they should withhold information and be um, uh, to quote Peter Wright from the old spy catcher days, you know, be economical with the truth. I think we have to be totally transparent with our prospects and our customers because they have enormous choice. It's the right thing to do. The profession has earned the badge of being morally bankrupt, justifiably. We, we are a pariah profession because there are so many people out there willing to bend the rules to their advantage, to be manipulative, to lie, to hide behind excuses and blame. When you're on the receiving end of listening to that, it's abhorrent. Why would you want to do business with anybody who behaves in that way? Agreed. And, and the good news, Marcus, is that by not acting in the way that, say, the large majority or, you know, or that perception that people have for salespeople, by acting with integrity, uh, authenticity, consistency, you immediately stand out. It's not the brute force approach or the approach that maybe is common in terms of sales training still, unfortunately. It's doing those things will immediately help you stand out 
And actually, you'll create a faster and, and closer relationship with whether it's a prospect or a, or a client. So it's incredibly important. I've just had a feed pop up on my computer. Yeah. And it says Ursula van der Leyen has claimed yes. her trade chief for the debacle that happened last week over the COVID vaccine. And that, that just sends out the wrong message. It reinforces the message that she and the cabal that she's part of cannot be trusted. That's a whole <laughs> that's a whole topic that probably would cover two or three podcast sessions, which is the, the, the structure, our political structure right now and the short-termism element of it, because they're so afraid of taking responsibility because they're fearful that they're going to have to resign or the damage it's going to have to their brand. And to an extent that that is also the problem with sales right now, because if we are seen as someone who blames, not blames others, but if we, we, we fear taking responsibility because we fear what it's going to do to our, to our brand. We fear what it's going to do to our reputation. We even fear that the buyer is no longer going to trust us. But actually, all the research and studies show it's actually the opposite. It's not about owning up to it and then saying, I've owned up to it, that's fine. No, no, no. There's a step further, which is, I've owned up to it, but here is what I'm going to do about it to make sure that I win back your trust and make sure this doesn't happen again. That takes a huge amount of maturity. There was a study I read about 10 years ago Mm. that said that vendors who admit to making a mistake are, uh, have an 88% higher probability of selling again to that customer than those who don't. I, I haven't come across that number, but that 88%, I mean, that, that tells you the story right there. And by the way, these buyers are not irrational people. They're not necessarily immature people. These are experienced individuals. And they know that they don't live in a perfect world. They know that even they themselves don't deliver perfect products and solutions, right? Everyone makes mistakes. But if you try to hide it, then you're almost, kind of, you're almost being incongruent with the world in which they understand and live in. So owning up to it, that doesn't provide, that doesn't give a sense of weakness. In fact, that's a source of strength and understanding and maturity. And buyers want to know that they're working with someone who's mature, working with someone who has that business savviness, working with someone who knows that Making mistakes is an is a integral part to growth and success at the end of the day. So they're willing, they're willing to put aside those mistakes as long as, as long as something is done about it. So um, we've got authenticity, we've got consistency, we've got honesty, we've got responsibility and accountability as a bundle. What are the other four? So there, there are three more. So reliable. Reliable. Right, and and you might think this is connected. This should be under responsibility, but actually, it's a bit more than that. Can I rely on you to fulfil your promise to me? Too often, still, unfortunately, we have salespeople who are responsible for winning new business, but we have those lone wolves that do things in the wrong way, pass them over, pass them over to the poor account manager, where they have to fulfil something that sometimes we just they can't deliver. So there are promises being made that cannot be delivered, and that then impacts the renewal of that client and hopefully the growth in terms of in, in that client spend with you. I'm so, so glad that you said this because I, I fundamentally believe 
that whilst the transaction may be over when the money has cleared your account, yep. the sale is only over when the customer comes back and they say, Moeed, you know, best decision we ever made, wish we'd done it years ago. This is how it's benefited us. Yes. And we were able to achieve X, Y, and Z outcome. And there is such a strong argument for the salesperson to continue in the cycle when you hand over to operations, when you hand over to customer success, and then regular touch points throughout to make sure that they're getting the value that they intended. And you go above and beyond because we know that depending on which market you're in and which study you read, it costs somewhere between six to nine. And actually studies that I read last year, somewhere between six to 21 times more to sell to a new customer than it does to an existing. There are now up to 11 decision makers in an enterprise sale. Prior to COVID, that was only seven. Yes. And you're talking about sales cycles that are dragging and drifting. You're looking at multiple layers. The ability to access people is significantly lower than it has been. Early on in COVID, you could get hold of people relatively quickly. But now, up to 41% of outreach attempts have at least two layers of navigation. And each one of those takes two minutes and 45 seconds, according to Jerry Hill at Connect and Sell. Now, that company makes 40 million cold calls a year, and they live or die by their analytics. So it's reliable data. It takes 33 outreach attempts to get one effective conversation. And on average, the average salesperson is making 15 manual dials an hour. If you're looking for senior executives in IT, that's one in 46. So it might take up to three hours of dial time to have one effective conversation. And if you blow it through being untrustworthy, you've just blown away three hours. And if you're on a million pound quota, that's the best part of 1,800 pounds of the company's money. It's expensive, dishonesty. Very expensive. Very expensive indeed. And it's not just expensive in terms of burning that bridge straight away. There's also residual effects that this has with anyone else who, who you haven't contacted yet. So Gardner did a study a few years ago around how buyers make the decision on which supplier to go with. And over 60% of that process, we see we live in a radically transparent world right now. And buyers spend more time doing their own research in terms of looking at reviews, G2, etc., speaking to their peers. They are gathering real-life experiences about those suppliers that they are considering. And if you as a salesperson burn bridges by giving promises that cannot be delivered, guess what? That is going to get out very easily. This is no longer the 90s or even the early 2000s where you know that may fall down through the cracks and someone may not hear about it unless they're within that small core networking group. Now it's very easy for someone to post that information across the internet and, and get to a wider audience. So that actually hurts you in the end because if that bad rep- reputation perpetuates, you are going to have to work harder to make those same types of sales. I I do want to delve into that. But before I do, let's finish this uh, this debate. Yes. So so, uh, numbers, numbers, uh, is it six? Not reliable. 
Did I say eight? It should have been, it should have been uh, seven. I do apologize. So we've got number five, which is liable. Number six. Now, this is a surprising one. Guilt worthiness. Let me explain. So guilt worthiness. Yes. Yes. There was a research conducted by University of Chicago. It was published in the journal for, I believe it was psychology and social psychology, published by Berkeley University as well. They did a study that found that people who feel guilty about a decision or guilty about some action that they have to do, if it's been forced upon them or expectations, those who feel guilty about it and then act according to their values and with authenticity, inspire a huge amount of trust in the recipient party. So if you feel obligated to act, so guiltworthiness are people who feel obligated to act in an ethical and responsible way. And if the buyer sees that you have that quality, their, their, their trust in you is magnified a huge amount. I don't have, they, they weren't any specific numbers uh, as such, uh, apart from the research itself, but that was a huge thing that they found was core and central to being trustworthy. And for sales leaders, for example, one of the best questions you can ask someone, and we kind of hinted at that at the very beginning of this, of this session, which is, tell me about a time when you felt guilty about an action you had to take. And if someone can't give you a good answer or has no answer, that should send alarm bells ringing for you because they are not reflective of the actions that they take. Everyone does something that they may not be proud of. Everyone has had a situation like that. Those who feel that guilt are those who can inspire trust because you can talk about the, 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 the conflict that you felt. You can talk about what action you took at the end of the day. And you can talk about why you took that action and how did that make you feel. If you have a business that's forcing you to sell in a certain way or forcing you to lie, that level of guilt worthiness will help you firstly make the right decision for you. But secondly, you may approach the buyer in a very different way. You may even go against what the business is telling you and find out that you're building far more trust with that buyer. So guilt worthiness is incredibly important. It was a surprising finding. That's very interesting. And then the final one is agreeableness. And this, this is... Uh, I'm stuffed in that case. <laughs> well, believe it or not, it's not, it's not how you think. I mean, there's, there's the typical definition of agreeableness, which is someone who's warm and friendly and cooperative and compassionate. It's not really those soft things, actually. Think about the word influence. Influence in Latin means to flow, right? Marcus, you may have come across a situation where you felt very, you had a very strong opinion about something. And you share that opinion with someone who has a different point of view. Now, if that person came back to you straight away, once you've shared your opinion that, you, again, you feel very strongly about, and they said, you're wrong, and here's why you are wrong, how would you feel about that person? Um, if it was valid, then I'd be grateful for the, uh, the constructive feedback. If it but was initially. Um, Initially, what, what's um, the first uh, emotional reaction? Well, my, my first emotional reaction is to question it and to look in the ugly mirror because uh, over the years I've matured enough to recognize that I may be wrong and they may be right. I think in, in the past I would have uh, felt brittle and felt uh, upset about it. But now I, I've grown wise enough to recognize 
that I'm not the finished article and there's always another opinion. And so I caught that kind of criticism. And that speaks to obviously the maturity and also, and it sounds like the fact that you're constantly working on yourself and progressing and learning. But we can't rely on everyone being like that. No. And the problem, the, the problem is that, and there's research. So uh, Tali Sharat wrote a book uh, called The Influential Mind. And there was a series of research that was conducted around how do you get people to agree with your point of view? And why I talk about the word influence is you kind of have to enter the, that river and move along with them in order for them to be amenable to hearing your point of view. We're kind of trained to do, I hate this word objection handling, by the way, that's a whole other story. Right, but, yeah, but that's, a, that's just drivel. Oh God, but, but let's use this, right? Because people understand, it's a common nomenclature. People are taught to agree with the person, but here's what happens, right? Someone throws an objection, right? Or gives a reason and you say, hey, I understand. And then they go, but here's why I disagree with you. There is no compassion there, right? There's no sense of understanding. You've almost been insulting in some ways to basically say, hey, I'm just going to go through the motions, but you know what? I don't agree with you. That does not work. That's not agreeableness. I'll give you an example. I used to sell advisory services to chief R&D officers of very large organizations. These were individuals that were in charge of hundreds of millions of dollars worth of budget when it comes to their research and product development. And this chief R&D officer was of the strong opinion that in order to improve innovation and to bring in more ideas into their pipeline, he needed to implement uh, an ideation software that was going to cost them in the region of a, of a million dollars. Now, I know from our research that actually doing it that way wouldn't give them the results that he was hoping. In fact, you have to deal with the big picture here, which is the sense of comfort, uh, safe space, incentives for innovation people in the business to submit ideas through that platform. So he was kind of going the cart before the horse here. But did I say to him, in the Influential Mind book, you can throw as much data as you want, but psychologically, because we formed that opinion, our reticular activating system says, I'm going to ignore what you've just said, and I'm only going to filter in things that agree with my view of the world. So what we should be doing to be agreeable is to say, and here's how I approached it. I said, do you know what? I actually agree with you. And it's true. Having such a software and platform is important because you have a large organization. You want to centralize where those ideas are coming from. It's more effective to do so. And you can have experts view those ideas and start to assess whether they have commercial viability or not. So there is valid reasons why you should have that. Tell me, how have you thought about getting people to want to share ideas? Because innovators and research people are very analytical. They fear making mistakes. Their identity is around being accurate, uh, being correct about what they do. But we all know that a lot for innovation to happen, you've got to push through a lot of ideas that may not work, but you're trying to get that creativity and sense of creativity going. How have you thought about how you're going to create that safe space for your people to actually submit those ideas in the first place? And he was honest and said, actually, we're still working through that. We haven't really figured out a way to do so. You've touched on something else that's really important. Right. Which is by doing that, you created bias safety. Absolutely. That is absolutely fundamentally missing from so many sales approaches. So please carry on. But I just wanted to reiterate that point. Yes, because a, buyer, a, a typical salesperson without much experience or training, actually, would have said, 
I understand where you're coming from. Here's all the data why you're wrong. But you're speaking to someone that's got 20, 30 years experience, right? They have a lot of ego. That's how they got to the C-level position. And you're speaking to a head of R&D who's very well just about being accurate. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't work. Agree with them. As long as you're not compromising on your authenticity, your integrity, and things like that. And in that example, he was right. It was just the wrong way around. Can can I challenge that just slightly? Rather than agree, accept what they say and take it as valid from their opinion. My pal Martin Lucas developed a whole branch of mathematics called irrational mathematics. Right. The way you view the world is perfectly rational to you, but to me, it may look like you're mad as a box of frogs and vice versa. But right. to each of us, it does appear rational, and it's the way the world is to us. And because you can then map that, you can then start to uh, identify and predict behavior, but also you can identify how to move somebody from a place where they're just considering an idea to into temptation and then into making a purchase decision. But you've got to go, you've got to meet them where they are. And this, again, I think is one of the big problems with so many sales methodologies and uh, sales approaches, which is that it kind of ex- you, you kind of expect the buyer to meet you halfway. It doesn't work like that. You've got to go all the way over the halfway line and meet them where they are and then gently bring them back to where you believe they need to be for their own best interests. And that's what you did in that example. Yes, absolutely right. And, and I'd be really interested to read about this irrational mathematics because as the saying goes, there are seven over 7 billion people on this planet, but there are also over 7 billion virtual realities. On this Absolutely. Planet. We all see things based upon, and this is a very big topic, but we all see things based upon our experiences, uh, the knowledge we've gained, our opinions, and the way that we perceive, and therefore the emotions we have uh, in relation to that world and the world we live in. So uh, yeah, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And you do, and you made a really good point. You do have to step way over the line into their world because you are proving to them that not only, not only am I empathetic to your world and I'm willing to see and step into your world, but I'm willing to also do my homework and help you understand not just your perspective, but why there may be a better way that you may have not considered or had a chance to consider. But by the way, that's part of my value as a salesperson. I speak to more people who are your peers in one week than you probably do in a year. And I have a lot of insights to share with you that you could find very insightful and valuable to you. So well, those, are, uh, those are the seven. Uh, that, that's excellent. And again, this is borne out by the research of brilliant minds like Mark Schaefer, Colin mm-hmm. Shaw, Matthew Sweezy, Karen Manvier, um, Barnaby Winter. Um, you know, th- these are people who are working hard to humanize marketing. And we have to humanize sales as well. Because far too often, sales is viewed as this grubby, dark art, as manipulative. And it mustn't be that. If you want lifetime customers to trust you, to bring additional business, and to refer you, to buy more, and to extend the relationship so that you are their partner, and they see you as the first port of call, whenever they have a problem, they pick up the phone to you, you need to earn that trust. And it's through your behavior, through your values. And I remember 
David Hensel talks about values as the filter through which every decision you make in the company is made. If it fits with the values, then we explore it. If it doesn't, it's automatically rejected. And as a salesperson, having values is really important. There there is a wonderful book, I believe it's only on audio, called The Right Use of Power by Peter Block, which I would recommend all salespeople read. And anyone who's in a leadership or a management position should uh, listen to as well. Because it talks about the importance of using values as your filter and making sure that the work that you do, because it's based on values, doesn't then create unintended consequences, which again, we see through compensation schemes, through measurement schemes, through management styles. And all of these things then feed the wrong kind of behavior and they create dissonance in the salesperson. And that then is reflected back through the buyer's distrust. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so much there that you shared, but the only way I could, the way I would sum that up is, are you living and speaking your truth? Right? Are those the values that you have? And, and this is, it's a perennial issue because businesses have their own agenda. And a lot of people, quite frankly, need a job. And they are attracted by other values such as money. And they're willing to compromise on, in my view, the more important ones, which is, is this business aligned to my values? And am I speaking my truth? Because at the end of the day, if there is that dissonance, you'll become depressed, you'll become angry, you'll become upset. And guess what that's going to do to your motivation? Guess what that's going to do to your your passion when you have to do a a difficult job like sales? It's going to go down. So it's only going to harm you at the end of the day. And it's not in either either party's interest either. So yeah, I I completely agree. And and I've I've certainly not heard of the the right use of of power. So um, I will look that up for sure. Well, again, uh, I've been looking at the subject of mental health in sales. And if you are inauthentic, if you are consistently trying to hide your weaknesses, if you're holding back your unique perspective, then you're probably not knowing when to say no. And these are the four masks that Michael Brody Wake talks about. And it's really, really important. Understanding the impact that this has on you, a, a visceral level, because in my experience, that I, I, I look at so many sales operations where there is a large number of the salespeople on the road to burnout because they're constantly fighting against their values in order to keep the rent paid. And that, I think, is a corruption that's caused by bad management and bad leadership and having the wrong measures in place, the wrong KPIs focusing on the wrong outcome, the relentless focus on growth at any cost, making the, uh, the quota for the, this quarter, which if you're a privately held business, makes zero sense. Yes. If you're publicly listed, I get it, because that will affect your share price. Mm. But if you're privately owned, what on earth are you doing behaving like a, pr- a publicly listed company and compromising your ca- capacity to deliver great outcomes and create an environment that your salespeople can be confident and comfortable coming to work for. 
Yeah. I mean, this is the ugly side of capitalism because those investors, well, those investors are focused on quick returns because they're trying to sell the business within five years. But they're um, doing themselves harm. They are doing we, themselves we, we harm. We know. Yeah. We know from the research and from the evidence in terms of performance that companies that have highly engaged employees who are not constantly looking over their shoulder whether they're going to be fired or not, whose moral compass isn't constantly being crushed, end up producing 430% higher profit per employee, 290% higher revenue per employee. They churn 40% less frequently. They produce 20% more. And share price compound grows at 316% higher annually. So it's a false economy to go for this growth at any cost. And it's a misdirection because if you are a capitalist and you genuinely claim that you want to grow fast and maximize shareholder value, then why not do things correctly in the first place? Completely agree. Yeah, completely agree. And to go back to your point about compromising on your values, especially the salesperson's value, who's at the very sharp end of your brand and how it touches on the market, right? And your buyers. Effectively, what, what we're asking them to do is to commoditize their values and commoditize their humanity. And that can only lead to unhappiness. And actually, it becomes more expensive for you as a business because you're now moving into the churn and burn of hiring and firing salespeople. And that, as we know, and all the numbers and researchers out there, that is extremely costly for a company. The average business loses about, and then there's a bit of a range, but the average is about 80,000 pounds, 20 days of management time, right? Through bad hiring. Is that for one bad hire or is that? Per bad hire. Per bad hire. Per bad hire, because you've got to onboard and train them. And that's not including that for an average business, it takes six to nine months to bring a new hired salesperson to productivity. And that's not even profitability, that's productivity. Full full productivity in sales occurs after three years. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, Phil McGowan uh, did his PhD on this. So he's a a doctor of sales at the University of Portsmouth. And um, his research is really clear on this. It takes three years for a salesperson to reach full productivity. So if you're burning through 40% of your salespeople, chances are none of your salespeople will ever reach full productivity. There you go. I mean, there you go. That, that, that just makes it. I mean, I, I thought it was six to nine months, but three years, I mean, that is even. Well, six to nine months, that. that's to reach a productive level. That, and that's where I was thinking in terms of productivity, but for okay. full productivity full of three productive. years, that tells you everything right there. That in itself should be the incentive for these business leaders to think in the right way about not only who you're hiring, but how you are onboarding them, how you are trusting them how you're giving them certain space to make mistakes, which is fine, right? As long as you're, you're encouraging them to learn from those mistakes and share that learning with, um, with the rest of the team. You know, this is all the elements of servant leadership that um, my good friend Max Cates writes about in his book, Serve, Lead, Succeed. And he, he did an extensive research about this. Servant leadership, especially in sales, is how you succeed as a business. And unfortunately, there is too few of that going on. Um, in the and world. that was Max? Max Cates. 
C-A-T-E-S. So Charlie Alpha Tango Echo Sierra. Excellent. So, Moeed, let, let's take this a little bit deeper into the neuroscience and the, the psychology of it all. Compensation schemes. When we measure and when we compensate in order to drive certain behaviors, the unintended consequences are often that what you end up with is a pipeline that's basically full of crap. You get salespeople who are constantly behind on their quota. In 2019, 44% of salespeople globally hit their quota. In 2020, it was below 40%. Only 13% of teams, sales teams, hit their quota in 2019. In 2020, my suspicion is it was significantly less again. Now, if we're driving the right behaviors and we're focused on prospecting for customers for life instead of transacting to achieve our quota for this month or this quarter, if we are driven to do the behaviors that allow us to create, to only sell to people we should sell to rather than sell to anyone who's willing to part with a check. If we work with our customers, and um, Barnaby Winter says, stop talking about customers, talk about paying prospects, because that shifts your mindset to that continuous relationship. And I genuinely like that. Again, if we think about the neuroscience that goes behind behaving well, what is it that that triggers in the brain? and in the gut that allows salespeople to be authentic, reliable, consistent, guilt-worthy, responsible, honest, and consistent. And I'm going to take a different approach to this rather than the neuroscience, and that's more of the psychology element, right? Because the neuroscience is really the anatomy and the physical elements that allow for that. But the psychology is incredibly important. And you've touched on an import, a, a good point there, which is incentives are there to drive the behaviors. But those incentives are driven by the behaviors of those who are dictating what those incentives are going to be. And this is about the human needs of those individuals. There are several frameworks around that. You've got Maslow's hierarchy. You've got Tony Robbins' six human needs. It's the one I prefer because of the scale of the number of people he's been involved with and its simplicity. There are several others. So the first thing we have to look at is what are your human needs? And and there are six. Um, The first one is significance. A lot of us are driven by this need of significance. It's, It's an element of ego. And why do we have, why do we have, um, so, and the, so there's significance. The second one is certainty, right? And that's, a, that's, in my view, a big part of why we insist on salespeople having big number of prospects at the, at the beginning of that pipeline. Because if we have too few numbers, we feel an element of uncertainty. We no longer feel secure about the health of our pipeline, even though if done well, actually the numbers show something else. And by the way, this isn't just sales. From my work of over six years with heads of R&D, the principles are actually the same in terms of their own portfolio. Not about more ideas that are really crap. It's about good quality ideas and the overall portfolio value is higher. Um, So there's an element of that human need that drives a lot of people, which is that sense of certainty. Right? 
if we don't have a big number there, we, don't long, we no longer have certainty. And there are other elements of the human needs that are really important from the leadership all the way down to the salesperson. Variety is an important one, right? So uh, when we look at the qualities of the types of clients that we might want to go after and our approach, you know, prospecting, do we just go after phone calls or just email messages or do we have a bit more variety in our approach? A bit more variety in the way that we test and learn which approaches work well. Right? And we take a bit more of an analytical approach towards that. The other one is love or connection. So important to the sales process because I might trying to connect to that person's world and the way they view their world. Or I might, or I might try to get them to connect to my world and guess what? They couldn't care less because yeah. it's not in their interest. And then the final two, which is growth and uh, contribution vitally important. It happens to be two of the least seen in terms of human, human needs, but they happen to be probably the two most valuable. Personal growth. So am I incentivizing for healthy growth, both in my team and the business? Because if I don't provide healthy growth for my team, guess what? They're not going to provide healthy growth for the business. And what is my contribution to them as sales professionals and their advancement? And therefore, the knock-on effect is, what is our salespeople's contribution towards the buyers and their advancement? A great example of that is, it's not account management, it's account growth. Uh, oh, absolutely. So it's a, um, oh my God, that's a, a big a, issue. That account I, management yeah. is the one of the worst job titles that you, or account manager is one of the worst things that you can give to a, a salesperson, because that's basically zookeeping. You just feed the animals. To build on contribution, as a social species of social primates, we derive immense satisfaction from making a contribution to our own tribe, our team, uh, but Absolutely. also to our customers. Um, we want to grow as salespeople. Um, that variety uh, is important. Certainty comes by having good systems and processes that are reliable, by doing the right things intentionally and yes. constantly striving to improve. But the, the one that I'd really like to pick up on is love or connection. Yes. Because my suspicion is that's the one that many will shy away from. I think the best managers that I have ever had and the best I have ever seen they act genuinely with love and connection to their people. What you don't do is you don't talk behind uh, the person you love's back. You seek to help them. You want them to succeed. And again, this strikes a, a chord as a seller, because if you turn up with the wrong intent, which is to serve yourself, rather than acting as if you loved your prospects and have their best interests at heart, it doesn't mean that you're mollycoddling. It doesn't mean that you're permissive. It doesn't mean that you are micromanaging because that all falls into the category of rescuing, which is helping without boundaries or permission. It's tolerating non-performance. Absolutely not. There is a wonderful psychological model called the winner's triangle, which is vulnerable, nurturing and empathic, and assertive. And being vulnerably assertive is a really strong, stable position to take. But it does mean that you have the permission, if you've earned it or you've asked for it, to confront bullshit or non-performance. And you can say, Moeed, 
I really like working with you. Let me tell you one area that I'm genuinely concerned is holding you back. And I want you to succeed. What I'm seeing, however, is you are doing X, Y, and Z, and that is preventing you from actually achieving your fullest potential. Can we work on this together so that you're able to achieve your, your intended desired outcomes instead of beating your head against the wall and wondering why you're not consistently smashing your quota? Now, that's a very different conversation to coming and being punitive and saying, you do this, you do that. Absolutely. Because that's Absolutely. all about drama. And from a neuroscience perspective, and you use the word their tribe, right? In terms of the evolution of our brain, right? I mean, it, it hasn't really changed that much in over 50,000 years. And what you've just described about the tribe, here's how I describe it to my clients, which is your buyers are deciding whether you are worthy of their tribe, neurologically. And back in those days, that tribe was made of a very small number of highly trusted individuals. Anyone who's seen was, was seen as not to share the same values, share the same intent, share the same contribution level to that tribe, was seen not as someone who is to be despised, but someone who is a danger to our very survival and therefore needs to be rejected. At a neuroatomical level and a psychological level, that primal element, that's how buyers view any supplier or salespeople that they are engaging with. Are you worthy of my tribe? And will you harm my survival? Now, back then, survival was death or alive. Now, it, it, these are things that aren't, it doesn't, it's not a matter of life or death. But neurotomically, we view them still as a matter of life and death. Are you going to affect my reputation that I've worked brutally hard to get to, right, to get? If you affect my reputation, does that mean I'm going to get fired, right? Am I going to lose my ability, my very identity? So for some people, that ego and that reputation is their very identity, and to lose that is almost paramount to death. Or will I lose my income, and that income is so important for me to support my family who are everything to me. I do everything because of them. That is why I work so hard. So the human needs element is so important, but there's also that evolutionary element to this as well, which is that's how our brain is wired. There are, one thing to, to remember is that the buying process in business is more emotional than the consumer. And research was done by CEB, which has now been acquired by Gartner, into this very thing. There is business value, but there is also emotional value. And in tough times, particularly recessionary times, business value is table stakes. Without that, you don't have a seat at the table. But it's the emotional value that's going to determine whether someone will be loyal to you while budgets are being cut. Will they feel safe enough to say to the CFO, no, 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 I want this and here is why I want this. And they will champion you, even when they're asking them to slash their budgets by a certain amount. And that's because you've heard the saying, Marcus, perception is everything, right? Yeah. That's actually incorrect. It's emotions is everything, are everything. Because okay. in terms of the neuro, neuro, neuroanatomy, the stage of the process, number one is sensory. Number two is perception. Number three is emotion. Number four is thought. Then number five is action or behavior. 
And all of that has to go through the emotional elements. We don't, we forget, and there's been extensive studies on this by neuroscientists, we forget 80 to 90% of what, of the words that someone tell us within two days. But we remember 100% of the emotions that we felt with that person. That's why trust is so important. That's, that's why it's so core to sales, because they're not going to remember everything you said. But if they feel that they can trust you, that is hugely important to the process. So you're not, and I remember one of the podcasts of yours that I listened to with Scott Ingram, and you said it perfectly right. People don't dry the, buy the drill bit. They don't even buy the hole. They don't even buy the picture that they, that, they, that they put. They buy the emotion that that picture gives them, right? And that is hugely critical to the buying process. Memory, thought, our ability to uh, reason all goes through the amygdala at some point. The way we remember things is, is connected to how we felt about those things. So some person can remember the most mon- what may seem to us to, to be the most mundane things, but to them, it's a beautiful memory because for them, that has an emotional connection. And that's why they will remember it more than you. It's really important to think about that. It's also important to understand the architecture of the brain because the emotional centers and the decision-making centers are adjacent to one another. They are. And if the emotional centers of the brain are damaged, you can't decide whether to wear a white or a blue shirt, have tea or coffee, get up, go to bed. And so the structure of the brain is hardwired and no amount of trying to convince yourself that you have the best product and using logic and reason is going to make the blindest bit of difference unless you get that emotional connection. And this is why story is so important. And we need to learn how to tell, position what we do in the context of stories. And for the last quarter of a million years, our ancestors have been sat around campfires telling stories. We remember stories. I remember stories that people told me from 20, 30 years ago. I don't remember the context, but I still remember the stories. And I you remember definitely the remember the emotion. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Again, when you decide whether you wear a white shirt versus a blue shirt or whether you have coffee or not, again, you're not, you're not deciding the logical validity of it. You're deciding the emotional element of this. Do I feel more attractive in the white shirt than I do with the blue? Do I feel more alert when I have coffee versus not, right? So you're absolutely right. It's all, it's all emotion-based. And people who say, well, look, I sell you know, million-pound projects, very large projects, it's not based on emotion. Yeah. I'm not saying that logic is not involved. It absolutely is. But don't fool yourself by thinking that a large part of the, the decisions they make are not, are not based on emotion. We make 35,000 decisions a day at an unconscious level, most of which are to reject stuff. And of those 35,000, at least 95% are driven by emotion. Once we've emotionally decided, then we find justification through reason, logic, and evidence. And the problem that we see so many organizations, and marketing is so guilty of this, Mm. the drivel that they produce pages and pages of white papers and product data sheets and adverts, utterly pointless because nobody engages with that dribble. You've got to get them emotionally involved. And this is why the work that so many people like Martin Lucas are doing is so key. 
Because uh, unless you are able to tap into the biochemistry and the architecture of the brain, you will be missing out. What the brain is, is basically a chemical reward system. It's constantly looking for little dopamine hits. Now, the problem is that when you lead with reason and logic, you're not feeding it those chemicals. What you are feeding it with is a bunch of noise. And more often than not, it triggers a negative response because the first thoughts that go through people's minds are, how much is it going to cost? So you end up pumping the brain with cortisol and adrenaline, which has absolutely the counter effect that you're looking for. And so when you look at the sequences with which marketing and sales and customer success are communicating with their customers, they're missing the mark 4,950 times out of uh, 35,000. Because most of the time, what they're doing is they're trying to appeal to the wrong parts of the brain and they're feeding the wrong neurological processes. So uh, we've come to time. So what one bit of advice would you give people in terms of really trying to understand other human beings? Big question. Oh, that's, that is a really big question. The first thing that I would recommend is to get familiar with what I talked about, the human needs, the six human needs. They are what drives the decisions. It's our very identity. It drives everything that we do. If someone is seeking certainty, don't sell it. Don't sell what you're doing based upon how innovative and risky it is. If someone is seeking growth, don't talk about certainty, right? Because that's anathema to them. So understand what those human needs are. The second thing that's really important is to understand their social profiling. Now, I want to make clear, this is not about categorizing people. This is about giving yourself a few tools to help you just better understand that person. But don't are make the mistake- about archetypes and stuff like you that? You have archetypes. There are so many different- frameworks. There's the PCM framework. There's the, there's the Miller-Hein framework. There, there are quite a few, but you know, pick the one that you feel more comfortable with, especially in the heat of the moment in, in a sales meeting or sales, sales call. But why is that so important? It's because the language that they use and the social profile is how they view the world right? Their reticular activating system filters all the different senses to only allow the things that they deem to be in relation to their identity of how they see the world and their place within it. So if you're talking to an analytical person, by the way, logic and data is great because it makes them feel good. So talk about the analytical element, talk about the data, talk about the evidence of what you're doing without forgetting the other sides, but, but lean on that just a little bit more. If you're talking to a driver, then talk about results, talk about speed, talk about goal orientation. They're not going to be interested. They're going to be less so interested about the data. Use that to understand who am I speaking with and how do they see the world? Because that's how they accept the world in their eyes. And am I speaking their language? This is not about manipulation. This is about truly wanting to be compassionate and understand that person that you're speaking with. You're not lying. You're just using different language to say the same thing about your product that you would have already said, right? This is very important. Another element that's worth exploring as well is geographic impact. The UK will have very different filters than, say, the United Arab Emirates or Korea. And again, the science behind this is not only really interesting and very clever, but also vitally important 
because what I see happen so often is a US or a UK company looks at opening up in Europe. I mean, Germany is what, 30 different states? Yeah, America is 50 different states, and you've got variances between East and West, North and South, and there is no one size fits all. And it keeps coming back to that point that we made earlier, which is you need to meet your prospect where they are. So this has been a fascinating conversation. I do hope you'll come back. Absolutely. Yeah, this is, uh, you ask amazing questions and uh, it's a great discussion. So uh, yes, I would be more than happy to do so. Well, tell me this, talking about going back, you have a golden ticket and you can advise the idiot Moeed, age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you give him that you know he'd have probably ignored, but he would have valued or would have benefited from if only he'd paid heed? There are two, if you don't mind me sharing two. Please. I had troubling experiences when I was young, which affected one main thing, which is my, my, my sense of self-esteem. So if I went back to my 23-year-old self, I would, I would find a way to convince him that his self-esteem is it's everything. And it's important for him to address and to not to lose that. That is probably, that is the biggest advice I'll give myself. And then the other one is, uh, and it's kind of connected to it because without self-esteem, I wouldn't have done so or less effectively, which is, you know, take care of who are the five people that you hang around with, as, as Jim Rohn says. Mm-hmm. I think back then I, I didn't feel I had the self-esteem or self-worthiness of myself to be able to push that into people who are way up, what I would have viewed as way above where I was, but I would have pushed him to do so a lot more. So those, those are my two answers to that question. Very interesting. Thank you for that. Tell me this. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, the biggest struggle that I have is uh, my frustration with how, in my view and from the discussions I have, you know, sales is, is still stuck almost in the 90s and early 2000s. Our buyers have run ahead of us. And we haven't, we haven't adapted our... And I'm talking generally, right? I'm not saying that there aren't any companies that are doing great. There are some companies doing amazing things. But I'm, I'm struggling with and frustrated with getting sales leaders and business leaders to see that there is another approach that has proven to show success. And even when I use all my techniques, it's very hard for them to go against that grain because in terms of evolutionary purposes, you're asking them to step outside of the tribe and that's really vulnerable for them. And they would rather go back to safety as opposed to staying vulnerable, even though logically it's the right move. So, for example, I had a conversation with a a, a sales leader for a mid-sized company, and he was only interested in hearing about ideas from within his industry. Yet, he was trying to outperform his industry. So I said, well, you need best practices from outside of your industry if you want to perform better than what everyone else is doing, because... Those other industries have gone through things like stakeholder engagement and management and and, uh, far more than your industry has. And you're just starting to get to that in your industry. So you need to learn from their mistakes over decades and decades of experience so that you don't have to go through that pain. I struggle at the moment with getting these leaders to see that, that, that. And it's not a new way. It's a better way, right? It's a way that's proven. And I'm still surprised and in some ways disheartened by how often I'm still seeing that. I think we still have a lot of work to do as sales professionals, you know, and, and we need to kind of champion that. Hopefully I've made sense there, but that, yeah, that's... Yeah, well, you, you absolutely have. And uh, again, you and I are both of one mission, which is yes. to make sales a force for good. 
to make it an aspirational career choice and one that the next generation can be proud and aspire to get involved with. Absolutely. Um, again, what's really interesting here is that you're meeting this kind of resistance from the leaders who can't quite let go of the idea that we need to make 100 dials a day or 300 dials a day and we've got to get 15 meetings in a week. And they focus all on the lagging indicators. Yeah, agreed. But in my experience, because again, you and I have been um, kind of selling similar stuff for a while. And what I've found is that by having people describe their desired outcome and then work together to uncover why they're not achieving it, and then have their fingerprints all over the solution in terms of how they can attain that uh, desired outcome, enables them to move incrementally away from what they hold on to, because the, the, the past and um, their habits have a hold on them. But there is a magnetism to the shiny new future. And mm. helping them map that process so that they can see how they can make the outcome happen and what the cost of staying stuck is but more importantly how you can transition with the minimum amount of resistance because you tapped into it earlier that so many people are worried about losing their jobs losing face their reputation being damaged or their careers being limited or halted and so we need to be their ally I fundamentally believe that as salespeople, people come to us for leadership and a safe pair of hands. And we need to have that service mentality. And the minute we start with the right intent, which is, can I help? Am I the right person to help? If what you're looking for isn't what I do well, then to tell you the truth up front, um, if what you're looking for is actually going to do you harm, to get permission, to challenge and confront. I think those are the qualities that make for great salespeople and dramatically reduce the resistance that buyers throw at us. So again, I'd love to discuss this in more depth with you because I, I think together we're, so we're, we've got a lot of the answers, but I think together we can collaborate to come up with better ones. Agreed. And, and the only thing I would add to that is we have a chance, we have something on our side, which is that the younger generation are more open to this approach, actually, in, in, from my experience. Absolutely. I'd love to hear if, you've, if you're seeing the same. But these are the leaders of the future. And if we tackle it to that grassroots level, we have a better chance of seeing that, that beautiful future sooner. Um, well, that's why I target only millennial and Gen Z. I'm not targeting my age group because they're more resistant to it. And frankly, I can beat my head against a brick wall, but then it's not, it's not the brick's fault that my head hurts. So, okay, look, and we've come to time. What, what If you were to recommend two or three great books or podcasts or uh, videos that people should pay attention to, what would you recommend? Yeah, that, that's, a, oh gosh, that's a really hard question because the way I view books and I read so much is I take pieces of things from each one of them. But John Green's book on mastery is a good one. Sales, like any profession, it's a vocation, it's a profession, it is something that needs to be constantly worked on. So you need to learn how to master yourself before you master the craft. 
So I think that that one is very important. Carol Dweck's book on mindset. Yeah, brilliant. Because growth is incredibly important. When I was studying neuroscience, we were still of the opinion that our minds, our brain was actually fixed. It's only in recent years that we've realized it's, it's fully plastic and, and it's plastic until the, the day we die. Obviously, it's level yeah. plasticity is lessons as you grow older, but it's still plastic, which means you can learn new things. And it's about the way you view the world and the mindset. That, that's very important. Just off the top, there, is, there are probably about 50 well, to, others I can recommend. But To yeah. build on that point, the more you train your mind to be open and to learn, the more open and plastic it is. Since the age of 23, I put in one to six hours of study a day. Mm. And my brain has not even come close to filling up. And in fact, what it does is it creates more connections, uh, but it also raises more interesting and better questions. I know that was a topic we planned to talk about, yes, so we'll bring that into one. the next episode. That, that's a big one. Right? So, but it's yeah. huge. Yeah. Okay, how can people get hold of you, Marid? First way is you can see more about what I'm doing on uh, you know, proverbialdoor.com. You can email me directly, so mamin at proverbialdoor.com. And you can also find me on, uh, on LinkedIn, which is forward slash Moeed Amin as well. We also have a, a channel on uh, YouTube where I post a lot of a lot about guidance and advice, as well as interviews with some of, uh, some of the best, best well-known experts, not just in the field of sales, but all the peripheral elements to do with sales. So we have someone who's a healthcare specialist, uh, functional medicine about health and focus and mindset, et cetera. We also have Mark Bowden, who's all about human behavior and uh, body language. We really look at the peripheral area that impacts sales. So those are the four, was it four areas that uh, they can find out about me. Excellent. Marie Damin, thank you. Marcus, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this interesting and worthwhile, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about how you can grow your business and achieve hyper growth whilst maintaining an environment that people love to come to work, where customers keep coming back and keep investing in your solutions, then please drop me a line at marcus at laughs-last.com or contact me through LinkedIn. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone else who would be, then please connect us either via email or via uh, direct message. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.